Welcome. We're so glad you're joining us for a word in season with Doug Stringer and friends. Today, we are sitting in on one of our transforming leadership calls. We host these type of calls often and would love for you to be involved. Sign up for more info by visiting a word in season podcast.org. While you're there, would you take our two minute survey? Now let's welcome our host, Doug Stringer. In 1968, Ann Jimenez and her husband, John, founded the 4,000-member Rock Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. They also founded a ministry for drug addicts, a home for unwed mothers, and Rock Christian Academy and Rock Bible School. Together, they planted over 400 churches around the world. Before her marriage, Ann was a full-time evangelist. John and Ann led the Washington for Jesus rallies in the 80s and in the 90s when over 700,000 gathered in Washington, D.C. to pray for America. She was named senior pastor of the Rock Church in 1999 and confirmed as presiding bishop of the Rock Ministerial Fellowship in 2008, following John's homegoing. She was national chair of America for Jesus 2012, a national solemn assembly on Independence Mall in Philadelphia. Anne has co-authored the book Upon This Rock with John. Her other books include Whose Kingdom Is It Anyway?, Beyond Tradition, The Emerging Christian Woman, Marking Your Children for God, Born to Preach, and most recently, Resurrection Life Now. The Ann Jimenez Ministries television program can be seen nationally and internationally on TV and on the internet. Ann's prophetic preaching is known nationally and internationally. Integrity is the hallmark of her ministry, and I can say yes and amen to that. I had the pleasure of being a part of the executive team for the America for Jesus in 2012, and I was so honored that Bishop uh, Ann Jimenez had asked me to be a part of that, and that's been some incredible relationships going in and out of Philadelphia in that region. But also, I first heard about and watched it with, with great excitement, the original Washington for Jesus, and of course, Pat Robertson was a part of that, and so many others, and And I thought, what an amazing gathering on the Washington, D.C. Mall with over 700,000. Now, in today's optics, I'm sure they would have said that was well over a million. But um, back in those days, conservatively speaking, there was at least 700,000. But I know there was well over that just based on visuals of different other functions and of that. And then the other is uh, I had the pleasure of being connected in the 90s more closely as they were preparing for other Washington for Jesus events and gatherings And then, of course, honored to be a part of America for Jesus at the Hedgeways of America is Philadelphia. It's really the point of first entry to the federal government and to our country. And so it was very prophetic that Anne and her team and the executive team felt that that was the place to go to really redig the wells of revival for our nation. And of course, William Penn, we're looking at his dream for what he saw America could be and should be. And we were excited to be a part of that. Saw so many ministries that didn't even really come together, came together during America for Jesus. And so, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for the impact that that you and and John and, of course, your family and the church there has had all of us. You and I were talking before uh, we started the Zoom call. You were actually born and raised in Houston, Texas, where some of us are from. Yes, I was. I love Texas. You know, you can take a Texan out of Texas, but you can't take Texas out of them. That's, That's what right. they say. <laughs> That's right. You went to San Jacinto High School. Yes, Lanier Junior High, San Jacinto High School. Yes. Wow. And then you went on to Corpus Christi. Corpus Christi has beautiful water. Back then, they called it Corpus Christi 
the sparkling city by the sea. <laughs> wow, wow. And it was beautiful then, and I'm sure it is now too. Amen. I have a lot of great relationships there. I want to kind of look back at some areas in our lives and part of the things we ask our leaders, what was it that when you received the revelation in your testimony, the revelation of Jesus and that he revealed himself to you? Because I believe with all the divisiveness and all the challenges we're going through in the world today, if we can all remember that moment, the moment when Jesus became real to us, if we could just look back at that and not Forget that moment through all the stuff that we go through in life. Uh, it'll help us keep our focus on where we're going. So share a little bit about your testimony and how you came to the Lord and how he revealed himself to you. Uh, Doug, I was not taken to church. Uh, my father, I never saw him in church until he was in his 70s. And he moved up here where John and I live. My mother's family had an experience with uh, her older sister, probably in the early 1900s, I guess. I don't know exactly when, but she was dying with TB and uh, they were Lutherans, but they heard about a tent meeting where a woman was preaching. It could have been Maria Woodworth Etter. Um, I don't know, but it was a woman with a tent and miracles. And they carried my aunt on a cot to that meeting. And she was instant, 19 dying. She was instantly healed wow. and lived into her 80s. And became a Pentecostal preacher. <laughs> wow. And she was a great influence on my life. She lived in Dallas. We lived in Houston. And to us, going up north was going to Dallas. <laughs> we took our winter coats with us. <laughs> and uh, she took me to a lot of the big tent meetings or crossing and crisscrossing the country. Jack Cole, so many of them. T.L. Osborne, O.L. Jaggers. That was the crossroads of the tent revivals back in the day. And uh, but when I was 16 years old, I got uh, sick and my sister came in one day and she said, well, there's a tent meeting down the street. You ought to go down there. They're praying for the sick. Well, I knew that God healed from my grandmother, and my aunts. So I walked down to that tent meeting on a Saturday afternoon by myself. And lo and behold, there was a woman speaking and it was Frida Lindsay who wow. later she and her husband started Christ for the Nations in Dallas. And they were there, Daisy and T.L. Osborne and Gordon and Frida Lindsay were the preachers. And that afternoon, Sister Lindsay taught on receiving the Holy Spirit. I knew about it, but I thought you had to be an angel <laughs> to receive it. But when she said she explained it so simply to understand, she said, how many of you want it? Stand up. My body stood up. My mind was still sitting down. I wanted to sit down, but I was afraid if I moved, somebody had noticed me. And then she said, everybody go back in the prayer tent. And I went and lots and lots of people. And I heard every, I started to get up and go home and the, that still small voice. And now know it was the Lord said, you haven't done what the preacher told you to do. So I started worshiping the Lord, just worshiping the Lord. And a little bit, I heard somebody speaking in another language. And I thought, I'm not going to let that bother me. And I just get, then I realized it was me. And God filled me gloriously with the Holy Spirit. I walked home. And when I walked in the living room, my mother, Saturday afternoon, my mother stopped. She was coming across the living room, carrying them up. She stopped and looked at me and big tears started down her cheeks. She said, you've got the Holy Ghost. I said, I sure do. And I put up both hands, started praising God. And that started my journey of loving God, serving God. And I was 16 then. Of course, it meant my friends. It meant my boyfriend. It meant a lot of things, 
I, t- I told God, don't ever tell God this. I said, Lord, I'll give up anything, anything you had. And then suddenly I remembered my boyfriend that I thought I was going to marry. I said, well, anything but him. Well, guess what God wanted? He didn't want all the other things. He wanted the one thing I wasn't willing to give. I uh, worked for many, many years. And when I was 30, I quit my job and uh, started traveling as an evangelist. And God opened the doors. Somebody asked my father, said, well, who's her manager? He said, I don't know, but she travels everywhere. He said, she's doing better than I am. She drives a new car. (laughs) And it was, God was just remarkable. God was so faithful to me. The first time I ever heard prophecy over anybody, my sister and I had gone to the little church in Corpus Christi and we went in the, we didn't know it was a presbytery service. We didn't know anything at all. And they started praying for people, taking them up front and praying for them. We were all eyes and ears. And then the pastor, they would worship. The pastor would walk up and down the aisle and pick out people. Then he came down. I was sitting way over by the wall. He said, you down there, you, you. I said, me? He took me up there. And God just began to tell me that I was called and called all the days of my life and that I'd preach the word. Later on, he said, afterwards, he said, did you know you were called to preach? I said, yes, sir. He said, how long have you known it? I said, as long as I can remember, I've always known, always loved the Lord, always wanted to serve God, and always believed that one day. In fact, I told my boyfriend, I said, someday, don't laugh at me, but someday I may be creaking on a cane, but I'm going to preach the gospel. Of course, he looked at me like I was crazy, but here I am. (laughs) Here I am these many years later, and God has been so good. I was traveling Three years, and I met John Jimenez. He was traveling with a group they called the Addicts, and they were eight young men out of the Bronx. He lived a drug addict's life since the time he was nine years old. He was marijuana and then uh, reform schools and Sing Sing, Elmira, Hearts Island, Rikers Island, Bronx County, the tombs. And he would tell you a few other places of lower learning. But his father was a Methodist preacher, a, a guy in his cell. The last time he was in jail, God started talking about a church where they prayed for addicts. And he said he tried to get the warden to take him out. He called that guy the Billy Graham of the Bronx County Jail. He tried to get him to take that man out of his cell, and the warden wouldn't do it. Well, when John got out, and uh, he said going on the bus, going into the city, New York City, he said every telephone pole looked like a needle to him, and every cloud looked like a bag of dope. Because uh, drug addiction isn't just physical, it's mental. It's takes hold in your mind and he had been I don't know I think four years he hadn't had any drugs but at the anticipation of getting drugs he he was just an addict all over again when he got to the city he went to uh, meet with some old friends and of course he shot up with some drugs he had a little bit of money they gave him and then he went to see his mother and his mother said he knocked on the door and his mother said who is it he says Johnny and there was a long pause and she said my son is dead and she began locking the door back. He went out and he walked up the street in a drug haze. And he stopped at the corner. It was evening time. Stopped at a red light. He's walking back to his neighborhood. He turned his head and he looked. He saw a little lip gloss on a building mid-block. And it said Damasco Christian Church. And in his brain, he remembered that was the church that they told him helped drug addicts. Out of curiosity. He walked down. It was up a flight of stairs. And he went in. He said he saw guys he did time with, guys he did drugs with. 
he said, and they were all cleaned up, clean and dressed up. So when the offering pan came by, he had a $5 bill and a $1 bill in his pocket. He reached in. He thought he pulled out the $1 bill. And as he let go of it, he saw it was the $5 bill. The only reason he stayed to the end of service, he wanted his money back. <laughs> as an addict would. That's all he had. And, uh, but at the end of the service, they said, you've come to the right place. Man, they got the real stuff. And, and they talked to him, the guys that knew him. He didn't want to stay. He wanted out of there. But Pop Rosado, the little pastor, and they said, Pop, we, we've got to keep him. They were sleeping guys in the nursery on the pews. They had them everywhere. They were really one of the few works in New York City that was successful working with drug addicts. And many of those guys went to college. Some of them became professors. They, it's, it's amazing the talent and ability that is wasted because of drugs. But anyway, John Pop said, I'll make room for you. John said, oh, I, I've got to go. I've got somebody got to meet. When a drug addict tells you they got to go meet somebody, they'll never. you may see him in three months if you ever see him again. And so he left and went back to his neighborhood. He was sitting on one of those corner Coney Islands, you know, where you can kind of come in from either side on a little bar stool thing and with some of his friends. And they were just talking. Oh, but Pop told me, he said, I close at 11. So he would just <clears throat> never had any intention to go back. He said he turned and he looked up at one of these big Coca-Cola clocks and it said, I think, five or six minutes till 11. He said he never said a word to his, he just spun up and he started running. And he ran and he ran and he ran came back to that in that neighborhood. And just as he got to the corner, he heard a clock in the distance going gong, gong. It was 11 o'clock. He turned the corner and he saw this little man, little Spanish man, Papa's standing out under that on that dark street under that lit cross looking up and down and John came running up and he put his arm around him. He said, I've been waiting for you, son. Wow. And that's the story of John Jimenez's conversion. And wow. it's history now. And John made history. Julie's in some of the church history books with the Washington for Jesus rally. And Doug, I, I tell you, when John passed away, you know, this building, I don't know if you've ever visited us here or not. I can't remember. I don't think well, you have. Quite a, quite but, a few times, actually. Okay, okay. This building holds 5,000. The wake, it was full. Funeral service the next day, different people, some different people were here. It was packed again. The procession to the graveyard was led by a presidential escort of motorcycle policemen riding two abreast. John had worked with the police in all these cities around here and honored them, would have dinners for them. And when they heard that he passed, they were, I, I, my daughter's a big spender. I said, how much did you pay that? She said, mom, when they heard it was dad, they all volunteered. The procession, Doug, was so long that it took over an hour to get them from the church to the funeral. And the guy at the graveyard told me, he said, Miss Jimenez, we've got 26 miles of roads in here that we can double park. And you know how it is. And he said, we started, they came in on one side. We just started having to put them out on the other side of the street. We couldn't put anymore. I said, John would have liked that police escort. He would have said, I'm used to riding in the back of police cars. <laughs> he was a unique man and God used him and he served the Lord. He loved the Lord and he built many things. John was a builder. He built many things for God. Amen. If my memory suits me right, there at some point, you and John, of course, and John had a connection to uh, Sonny Argonzoni, Nikki oh, Cruz, yes. and oh yes, many like that. How did it that was the same era. 
it was the same era and they all knew each other. Yes. I think that we're in a culture where drugs are now legal. Things have been open. Pandora's box has been open. Yes. And I think as the church, we need to be ready because it could be one of those moments yes. like back in the in yes. the 70s that God's going to show up. The church needs to be ready to receive so many that when they find out that even though our government and the culture has made it acceptable, that it doesn't make it right and it puts people in bondage, they're going to need freedom. And I think this is a great opportunity for the church to be prepared to receive so many that have been lied to, and they're going to come into the revelation of the truth of Christ. Amen. John used to tell me, Doug, he said, he said, I started smoking marijuana when I was nine and ended up in reform school. He said marijuana was the doorway because once you try that and you like it, after a while, you're going to try something more. It's the entrance into that drug culture. Well, that's what breaks, I think, my heart. I know it breaks your heart and so many others that to see our local governments and the system or state governments just making it legal and then others yes. just looking at it, not realizing this really is. It's one thing when someone's in, in their adulthood to make choices, but it's another thing when you propagate these kinds of things as if it's nothing on our children and they're not able to cognitively comprehend no. um, the dangers of, and even physically, they mentally and physically, uh, the physiology of it even when they begin to experiment with things like marijuana. Absolutely. It always moves into things worse. I mean, I that's what happened to me as well. I thought I could handle it, but I still yeah. just look back and see how the entry level was things like marijuana. Mm-hmm. The other side of that, Doug, is that when people are under the influence of marijuana, I understand it would be like drinking or like alcohol. It definitely alters consciousness and your awareness and your reactions. These people are behind the wheel driving on the highways and the freeways, and they're under the influence. And that puts all of us at danger. Well, I definitely see that we're going to need the church prepared and ready uh, even now to the future of a great harvest, but in that harvest, it's going to take us being ready to receive many who have been deceived by the culture. Yes, yes. Let Christ change them and actually show them that his way is far greater than the ways of this world. Absolutely, absolutely. So, and how did you and John get involved? I know you already had homes for men and women and, and, and unwed mothers and I mean, it's amazing because the legacy of what you began was not the norm back then. And now so many recognize the importance and other ministries have done things similarly, but it really was unique at the time. There wasn't many doing it who recognized, let's take the ones that everybody else has given up on and help them become successful. And that in itself became a testimony and a legacy to what you have planted all over. What brought you into the place of also taking on such a major event like the first Washington for Jesus and subsequent ones after that? What birthed that? Because that obviously with everything you were already doing, tell us a bit about when it was and, and what birthed it and how you ended up facilitating that. I remember very well. John and I went out to California to speak at a uh, youth camp where a lot of, they called them the revival churches. And uh, they all came together, Violet Cotley, David Schock, uh, let me think, uh, Candace Tracy, many other names people would know out on the West Coast at that time. They all came together and did their youth camp together. And John was their speaker for the night. And uh, we were in an auditorium or something. He was speaking, he was just preaching away. 
And all of a sudden he stopped. He just stopped and stood there for a minute. He said, I just had a vision. He said, I just saw a man sitting behind a desk. And on the front of the desk was that round thing that says president of the United States. He said, and when the man's head was bowed and when he looked up, he said, this is the word of the Lord for America. John, and at the time, Jimmy Carter was the president. And John said that wasn't who he saw. He didn't know who he saw. I know who I think he saw it was more recent. <laughs> there wasn't, they hadn't been a president uh, for a long, long time. They would have said, this is the word of the Lord for America. But he stopped. He said, God's telling me we've got to go to Washington to the head of this nation. He said, you hit the giant in the head. We've got to go to D.C. That's the headquarters. We'll go there. And before that service was over that night, Doug, they had filled a 747 to go. I mean, literally, they packed airplanes to go from California to come. And they did come. And, And then later on, for the first year afterwards, we kept hearing stories of them, the people traveling back to the places they came from and people getting healed and saved and testifying on those airplanes. It was really something. And uh, a couple of months ago, someone asked me, did anyone ever tell you about flying into D.C. on that day, Washington, for Jesus, April the 29th, 1980? Anybody ever tell you about flying in that? I said, no. He said, well, I flew in there, and it had been raining for two days. And they predict it was a, a, a Siberian freight train coming down out of Canada, a Northeasterner coming from over the New York way, and something from down south was coming up. It was all the forces of nature were converging there against us coming there to pray. It rained every day and every night for four or two or three or four days. Pat Robertson said the night before they had the youth rally at the RFK Stadium. And it was still sprinkling of rain and mushy. And Pat Robertson said, God's not going to rain on his own parade. The next morning we got up in the dark. John said, I don't know if anybody will be there. I said, well, we're going to be there. Let's go. So we went down to our car, went over there. Doug, I saw a sight I've never seen in my life. As we went up on that platform, I looked and all up and down that mall where there were exits from the subways. It was like rivers of people were pouring out. People were coming up out of those subways everywhere. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, the Park Service had written on their board, 600,000 and still coming. And that probably was a very conservative count. That was three in the afternoon. Everybody came from the oneness to the two-ness to the three-ness to the, you know, everybody. Denominations came. The heads came. All Everybody came. There was a, a great combined choir. And... Uh, Evie Hill, I'm sure you've heard of them if you ever knew it. A great orator and preacher, uh, just an amazing man. About 10 o'clock in the morning, it was cloudy and damp feeling, and you know, the, the sun. And he got up and he began to pray. And I had my eyes closed. You know, when your eyes are closed and a light comes on, you know it, you open your eyes and say, Where's the light? He was praying, thundering voice, praying, God Almighty. And, I, and, I, and it's like I saw, I opened my eyes before God. The clouds open, the sun begin to shine. And we've got video and pictures of spanning the sun shining on that area. The man that came in on the airplane, he said, I came in and was landing. I looked over toward the mall. He said there was an oval shape 
where the clouds were open. He said it was rain clouds everywhere, cloudy, but it was oval shaped, no clouds over the mall, and the sun was shining right on the mall. And it was just wonderful. It was just the preaching, the testifying. And then we had a parade around the whole mall, state by state. And they, their governors carried banners, you know, Alaska, Arizona, right on down. All the states marched. It was breathtaking, amazing. That evening, the John had said, well, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord's going to be praised. And at six o'clock, they prayed the last prayer. And everybody began to leave. We walked over about a block away to a little coffee shop to get some tea. And we says, we sat there and looked out the way. It was in about 30 minutes. It started to rain. The heavens opened. It, there was a downpour in Texas. We would have said it rained cats and dogs. It rained and it rained. But everybody was gone. The buses came. They cleared them all out. And later, the park service told us there wasn't a scrap of paper left on that mall. 600,000. No paper, no garbage, no trash, no nothing. Just like it should be. We stayed in D.C. that night and uh, waiting for the news, you know, it, it's, it, nothing had been like that on the mall. Nothing. And they never mentioned it until they got to the weather report. And they were talking about this came in and this came in. This was coming down. And, it was, and then he paused and he looked at the camera and he said, however, there were a couple of thousand people. A couple of thousand. A couple means two, I think. A couple of thousand people on the mall today praying. And it didn't rain on the mall today. And then he stopped. He said, I guess they would say their God did that. We were in a hotel. I jumped out of my chair, but I said, yes, <laughs> my God did that. But yeah, that just reminded me. So on our way home, we had a, a man had flown us up there in his plane. And on the way home, Doug, we land coming in over the Chesapeake Bay. Over the Chesapeake Bay, the motor went off. All of a sudden, you know, you're flying along. We're coming into the landing. And all of a sudden, the motor went off. And that man's fiddling and fooling with knobs. And, and what he had forgotten to do was switch the tank. Absolutely, you know, but I thought, well, that's like the devil. He's trying to kill us out here in the ocean. <laughs> but we got home, and then the testimonies began for over a year. Testimonies poured in healing, deliverance, salvations. It was amazing. It was amazing. And then it was Bill Bright, Pat Robertson, Dima Shakarian. I think those were the main ones, along with John. And then all the other denominations, everybody, everybody came. Everybody cut on their knees and prayed for America. The legacy still ripples today. It was like, it seemed like a pebble in a, a pond is turned into a boulder in, in a lake. It's, a, it's amazing how, to this day, people still look back at something yeah. from that moment and those times of your obedience, you and John's obedience to do something that was out of the norm. And way beyond your human comprehension. Today, many are beneficiaries because of it. You know, I was thinking about this. You mentioned it was in April 1980. Yes. And a little over 41 years ago, how we need something like that today, because you mentioned many things in this, but it was, it, people crossed racial denominational oh, yes. lines. Yes. It was a common focus together that America needed Jesus. And it didn't matter what people thought, politicians thought, what, what was going on in the culture, you recognize our only hope for America was Jesus. And we need that today yes. more than ever. And you mentioned E.V. Hill. I was just reading a quote from him yesterday as uh, people were trying to bait him. And he, they asked him, 
uh, if he thought that Jesus was Caucasian as depicted in paintings. And uh, this was Evie Hill's reply. I don't know anything about a white Jesus. I know about Christ, a savior named Jesus. I don't know what color he was. I do know he was born in the brown Middle East. He fled to black Africa and he was in heaven before the gospel got to white Europe. So I don't know <laughs> what color he is. I yeah. do know one thing. If you bow at the altar with color on your mind, you'll get up with color on your mind. Go mm. back again and keep going back until you no longer look at his color, but at his greatness and his power, Ooh. the power, oh. his power to save. I thought, wow, yes. what a, a classic E.V. Hill uh, statement. Yes. That he he yes. realized that everything had to be focused on Jesus, not on all these other things that could divide us. And that's why Absolutely. we need, we need to remember landmarks like America for Jesus and, and subsequently the other ones you've done. And of course, as I was a part of, and many of us on this call were pleased to be a part of, you had Washington for Jesus in the 80s, and then it was America, America for Jesus, Jesus in yes. 2012. Yes, yes. You know, uh, Dr. E.B. Hill was a, a jewel. I hated it when we lost him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, going back April, in April, there were many ministries launched. Harry Jackson, I know you know. Yeah. Uh, Harry said he was a young guy in college, and he walked by that first one just and just listened. He was there in D.C. I guess he went to school there. And then later on became very much involved and very much part of and such a great friend to all of us. Jerry Falwell began his national outreach, and uh, Beverly LaHaye, right after that, moved from California to D.C. with her ministry, and I think that ministry is still going on in D.C. now, but many, many ministries were launched out of that move. And, you know, Doug, people say to me, well, why isn't that happening today? Why Why isn't it like that in church today? And I said, you don't understand. That was a sovereign move of God. Yes. It was sovereign. You can't make it happen. You can't wish it would happen. You can't work real hard to make it. That was sovereign. It was God's purpose and plan for that to occur and happen and affect our nation. Yes. And uh, I believe, in, in fact, at that time, Ronald Reagan was running, but he and uh, against uh, Jimmy Carter. And on inauguration day, when Ronald Reagan won, Bill Bright went to him and said, on his inauguration day, Mr. President, many of us believe that you were elected president on April the 29th, 1980. And of course, this was in November of 1980, way long after that. And then the inauguration was in January of 81. But Bill Bright said you were elected president on April the 29th, 1980. It was just uh, it was a wonderful time. It was a wonderful. And, you know, you talk about just doing something. We never knew we were doing anything different than anybody, everybody else wasn't doing. We thought everybody else was doing what we were doing, and we were doing what everybody else was doing. We didn't know that it was unique, as unique, really, as it was. John was a worker. He used to get upset with these guys. These pastors were always out on the golf course. He said, you won't win any souls out that way. You won't fill up your church. He worked constant. He was a soul winner winning souls anywhere he went. And the funny thing was business people would bring friends of theirs to the church into John's office and say, well, you just get my friends saved. And John would talk to him and pray with them and then accept the Lord. And then the businessman would take the man back to his church. John said, I could fill up this church and then leave them here. Yeah. <laughs> it was unique, very unique. When we look at the foundations that have been laid, I think that when you said why isn't it happening today? I believe that the seeds are still there and the harvest is yet to come in, in yes. greater measure. 
Yes. I think we need to continue to pray into that, but be ready. You know, for me, I think three components has been the last few years, as, as God's been reminding me, that one, we need these solemn assemblies. We need to come together, yes. recognize yes. it's bigger than any of us, and we need Jesus, not all of our egos and logos and everything else. And and then secondly, for us, we call it internally, helping America know that somebody still cares America. Yes, and yes. The idea is that area churches and ministries want you to know that somebody still cares. And in the midst of all the confusion, all the lawlessness, all the divisiveness, that because of Jesus who cares, that the church is still there across America. And then thirdly, I really believe, as you said, a sovereign move of God. We need a sovereign outpouring like never before. And I believe that we're ripe for that because of the foundations that have been laid, like Washington for Jesus and America for Jesus and in so many other gatherings that we've seen subsequently since then. But really the pioneering work that you all were a part of that helped open the possibilities for everyone else to say, we can do this. Uh, we've seen great movements like right. The Call with Luingo. We've seen great things like Promise Keepers on the Mall many years ago. We've seen so many others have said, this can be done. And yes. uh, together for Jesus, uh, you know, with Nick, Nick Hall and The Pulse and so many others, so many things have come since that birthing time. And I believe that if it's been birthed, there's been some troubled pregnancies, uh, mm -hmm. so to speak, but I yeah. believe we're, we're ripe for a great outpouring. But yes. if we, the church, have to be awakened. And I, I was quoting in an article recently, in one of my articles in preparation for Fourth of July weekend, and I quoted, as you mentioned, um, Ronald Reagan. And he said that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Yes. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It mm. must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it used to be like in the United States where men were free. I'm not speaking about being nationalist, but I do recognize that we're not of the world, but we live in this world. And that we, the nation of Christ, the, the culture of Christ, the church, must be a city set on a hill if we're going to impact the soul of a nation and, and be a blessing to the nations. And so, yes. again, thank you so much, Anne, and of course, to John for taking the risk and pioneering. Fast forward, I know that you oversee so many churches, and of course, the connection there uh, at the Rock Church. And of course, I was even there uh, when we did a thing with the Hagies and we did a, a oh, Night yes. to Honor Israel. Yes, and, yes, uh, yes. In fact, uh, Becky Keenan, Pastor Becky Keenan, she and her husband at Gulf Meadows are part of uh, Kufa and also one with Israel that she founded and very, very involved. And she had my wife and I, my wife speaks fluent Spanish and I spoke mm -hmm. in English and we moderated uh, one in Spanish for Kufa uh, at her church years ago. And just to see that there is people that recognize the importance of putting first things first and blessing so that we can receive blessing, et cetera. I want you to share a little bit about fast forward to even the call to 2012 at America for Jesus in Philadelphia, because that's providential. As 1980 and Washington for Jesus was a sovereign move of God, something God was stirring in your heart in 2012 in preparation for 2012 to meet in Philadelphia, which again, Bishop Harry Jackson, you know, the Reconciled Church and I, and that's a third, another component I feel like is so important now, the Reconciled Church, that the only way to see reconciliation is not the goal, but the outcome or the byproduct of unity yes. in Christ. And so what was it that stirred you 
to say we need to do America for Jesus in Philadelphia in 2012? Well, first of all, let me tell you that the first time we did it and came home and still had a lot of the bills that our church had to pay because when it's over, people quit donating. John said, I'll never do this again. (laughs) Eight years later, God spoke to his heart and he said, we're going back to Washington. We went in 88 and eight years later, every eight years we went back. And then America for Jesus came because John was gone by then. Someone had talked to me about it. And I said, oh, no, I'm, I'm not the one. I'm Scotch Irish. I'm not extravagant. I don't spend money extravagantly. And I knew the cost and I knew the bills. The idea is great, but I knew what the underpinnings were. But I prayed about it. I couldn't get it off of my mind. One morning, I received an email. I don't know if you know Phil Capuccio, evangelist. He sent me an email. It said something like, it's our duty. How can we not do something for our country? I don't remember all the words. But by the time I read that, I went to church that morning. I said, we're going. We're going. It was the word of the Lord. I took it as the word of the Lord. And I said, we're going. And we began to make preparation and reach out to people and begin to put all the components together. My son-in-law, John Blanchard, He's a jewel. He's very proficient at gathering people and knowing what to do. We began to work, and I, I think we, it was about eight months it took us to get that together, and it was great. We didn't know the danger of the area that we were in. <laughs> we had no idea of the physical danger of being down at that mall in Philadelphia, and I can't say it here. I won't say it, but it was real dangerous for us to even be in that area. We marched down there, and people came. And the day we got up, the weather was perfect. It was not too hot, not too cool. But right before we had our march, somebody was marching in the streets there. I'm not sure what it was, but it was some strange group. And it was like, well, they found out that we're getting ready to do this and they're trying to, but it didn't matter. All of it went by and we went and the presence of God was manifested. You were there. Billy Wilson was co-chair with me. He's now president of ORU. The speakers came. The singers came, the people came, and we exalted the Lord Jesus Christ in America. I learned so much when I began to study Philadelphia's part in all of it, and I learned so much about our history. And it's such a force that they're trying to destroy history today. If we don't know our history, they make us that we don't have roots. You know, the history of the church in Philadelphia and what William Penn's desire was that all the churches could worship there and worship in the way every individual church could have a, a place there and worship. and worship. To be one, to be in unity, it was beautiful. I wanted to tell you this, when we started out, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. <laughs> we didn't know what it would cost. We didn't know what God just, John just knew he heard from God. He went to Demas Shikarian and told him what God showed him. He said, I think we're supposed to go. Demas said, I'm with you. That was all the full gospel business. Then he went to Pat Robertson and shared it with him. Pat said, well, there's going to be all those people out there. He said, how are you going to feed them? And John said, let them fast. Pat said, I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) This I wanted to tell you too. How did we get in doing something? Because John and doing things to help prisoners when they come out, halfway houses. John, he had been in prison. He had come out. He had a heart for those boys and those men. And I never saw John pass a man on the street that was begging or sitting there begging that he didn't stop and put something in his hand. He had a compassion for people that were down and out because he had been in that very place. That's something that is epitomized and was consistent even with all the human notoriety 
that you and John have always had hearts of compassion. You've never forgotten your roots, and yet you've just gotten greater stewardship. And even what I appreciated about our going to Philadelphia is that as you and I talked, I felt that we needed one, to know the history of Philadelphia, but number two, to allow me to go and spend time to identify all the different ministries that were already there that prayed and doing outreach as compassion ministry. So you and I were able to, in our ministries, were able to give out the Golden Towel Awards to many existing ministries in the region. Yes. So I think that was part of the DNA. And and I was thinking even at that America for Jesus, Jonathan Kahn, now, of course, last year or year before last, did the the return uh, in in Washington, D.C. So every time you've walked in obedience, it's birthed other opportunities for people to move into next levels of their own calling and ministry. Yes, yes. And Lou Engle, after he's, he felt like that he carried on the Washington for Jesus tradition. He had yeah. many gatherings on the mall, all yeah. of them wonderful. People getting saved and getting their life to God, and it was wonderful. I really believe that there's so much treasure that of life experiences and the foundations that you've helped laid that we all need to glean from because I believe there's a new generation rising up that needs to know where it's come from, build on those foundations so they are empowered for their future. Too many disregard the foundations and the history. So I believe it's important that Jody and I wrote an article called Honor Releases Blessing a few years ago because Mm -hmm. you have to honor those who've gone before you. Even though we might be unique in the way we do things now, we need to honor those who've laid the foundations So we have direction and clarity of where we're going and for the future. Because all of us have met unexpected detours in life and challenges. You could name a few, but is there a particular or a couple of examples where there were some challenges that you personally encountered, but you overcame in your leadership journey and overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony? Because everybody sees, oh, Ann Jimenez and Rock Church and John Jimenez, and they see all this. But they don't realize the hidden place of prayer and Bible study and the hidden place of discipline to keep God in your life and, and the presence of God in your personal life so that you can have the stewardship of public ministry. You make me think of Catherine Kuhlman when she said, I can take you to the place where Catherine Kuhlman died. She said, I died a long time ago. She was continuing a great healing ministry, one of the great healing ministries, miracles. I heard her statement. I've heard her said on film, you know, on videotape. She said, I can take you to the place Catherine Kuhlman died. You know, we have to die to self and live unto God. God doesn't bless our flesh. He blesses spirit and word. One of the hardest trials I ever went through, I'd rather not say what it was. It's not important now. In it, I learned something I never even thought about before. I had a prophetic, some prophetic words over our life. God just put him, he said, reach out into what you think is future. I thought they were words for the future. He said, reach into the future and bring those words into your now and claim them for right now. So many times things we think are going to happen in the future and God's going to bless me in the future. God's going to use, reach out. If God said it, Reach out and by faith, bring those words right into your now and say, God, you've said this about me. You've said you're going to do this for me. Just claim it and, and, and pray into it and live into it. We can't live any way we want to live and expect the blessing of God. That is, that's crazy. We've got to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. 
but live for God with all your heart, all your might. And yes, we all have experiences and maybe some an outstanding experience in our life where we know that we died to self to live unto God. But uh, old prophet minister, his name was Costa Dare. He taught at Elam Bible Institute up in Lima, New York, going to be with the Lord. But he said to me one time, pain comes before promotion. And I've noticed through life, sometimes we go along and testing, but then comes a big, t- and you just think, you know, but if you get through it, there's promotion on the other side of it. It's like the final, you know, you learn all through class, but the end of class, there's a final for that phase. And we all have finals <laughs> come in our life. Did you learn what you were supposed to? Do you know it? Will you, can, can you live by, will you live through this on the word of God? Pain comes before promotion. Mm-hmm. And it does. Doug, can I tell you one thing? Yeah. I have a new little book. It's called Lord Jesus Christ, A More Excellent Name. They can get it at anjimenez.com. I was walking across my living room, cleaning the house, and I heard the Lord say to me, what did they call him after the resurrection? And I thought, oh, oh my, I never heard that before. Nobody's ever said that. I thought, well, if that's God, there's got to be a scripture. And I began looking, first chapter of Hebrews. And when you look, read the first chapter of Hebrews, that God's talking about his resurrected son. You know, it's in the last days he's speaking to us by his son. It's his resurrected son. If, if you know Jesus at all, the only Jesus you've ever met is the resurrected Jesus. You didn't know the man that walked by the Sea of Galilee. You know the resurrected Jesus. You read Hebrews, the first four chapters. And in there, tell you, every time you see it refers to him, say that he's talking about the resurrected Jesus. And even remember when he came in the end of Mark and he rebuked them. You know, they were all gathered together. He rebuked them for their unbelief. You know what they didn't believe? They didn't believe his resurrection. That's what he rebuked them for. You know, a name, every time there was a new revelation of the Lord, he revealed himself by another name. And the Bible said he received a more excellent name. You know, I know a lot of people named Jesus. You probably do too. That's not remarkable. The, the Spanish people, that, that's not a remarkable name. A lot of people use that name. And that was his earth name. But he received a more excellent name. You say, what was that more excellent name? The name that you and I receive at water baptism, which signifies our resurrection. Water baptism is a symbol of resurrection. We go down a dead center. We rise up as a you know new life. It's all in my little book. It's on Amazon if anybody wants to get it. Lord Jesus Christ, a more excellent name. I tell you, it thrills me to talk about the resurrection because mm-hmm. I walk in resurrection life. I nearly died uh, seven years ago with a viral myocarditis. I don't know if you heard or not. Hospital yeah. three months, unconscious, 12 days, paralyzed. From the neck down, I couldn't move. And the doctors told my daughter, your mother, if she lives, but she won't. If she lives, she need a heart transplant, a kidney transplant, and a liver transplant. Doug, I've been around the world two or three times since then preaching the gospel. I have no transplants. God is my healer and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time I call his name, in my, it brings up in me, I'm speaking to the resurrected Jesus. Too many of us pray to the one that was on the way to the cross. I pray to the one that rose from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. Amen. Say that title of the book again. I, that's a now uh, needed message right now. Yes, it the is name. the Lord Jesus Christ. And the subtitle is A More Excellent Name. More Excellent Name. Amen. It's a very small book, very inexpensive book. It'll be a blessing to you. 
Amen. Well, I'll tell you, you have a wealth of experience and information and testimonies, that, and we thank you so much for taking out your time today to be with us, and thank God for your life, your leadership example, your ministry, and your friendship. Just appreciate the time with us. Would you take a moment, and would you pray for all of these here, those who will be listening to the podcast, as well as the YouTube of this? I just pray for leadership. There is such a vacuum of leadership today. People are tired. They're burnt out. People in marketplace as well as ministry, vocational ministry, there are so many that are just full of stress right now. They need a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit. So yes. would you pray for all of us and that God would release his promises to us? As I've learned is what you just said, I'm always praying, speaking the Zoe life. I'm speaking the words, yes. speaking into my yes. situation. Yes. We don't need to strike the rock. It's been struck. We need to speak to the rock, speak to the yes, rock. Yes. So pray Amen. for us, please. Amen. Father, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask a relief to come over your people, a release from the pressure of, of life and ministry and stress. Father, I ask for a great refreshing and a release and a release in their spirit. Let the word of God the now word, the, the rhema word, rise in their spirit, Lord, and let them rise up in you and get their eyes off of everything else in this world. Lord, you're the one. You're the head. You've got it all in your hands. This is all your plan and your purpose working out. God, just minister life and strength and grace and healing. Let healing begin in bodies, soul, and spirit. For your sweet, wonderful people, bless them today. Lord, let them know that you are in total control. I ask it all in the wonderful, powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Head over now to a wordinseasonpodcast.org and let us know how we're doing by taking a quick survey. If you need prayer today, reach out to prayer at somebodycares.org or you can call or text our 24-hour Somebody Cares America prayer line, 855-459-CARE. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805 422 7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.